Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today's episode is going to feature Bo Miles, and Bo is a filmmaker, writer, PhD, and a man of many adventures, some paddling, others more unique and equally fascinating. So today we're going to talk about his attempt to paddle the incredibly complex, in so many ways, coast of Africa. So enjoy today's interview with Bo Miles. Hey Bo, welcome to Paddling the Blue. G'day John, nice to be on the, on the line. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you joining us today. So, uh, so Bo, tell us a little bit about your personal background. Well, I'm a, a country boy. I'm currently sitting in a small little five-acre hamlet of property about an hour east of Melbourne, uh, down in Victoria, in Australia. Uh, we're currently in lockdown at the moment, a stage four lockdown, although three here. Melbourne's in four, so they, they can't, they've got curfews and they're in quite a state with our, our conservative government that's really locked them down and we're a little more relaxed here in the country but it, I suppose out my window it looks much like what you would think the Yorkshire Dales are you know rolling green hills with um, shelter belts and patches of forest here and there and uh, springtime's blooming you know so there's lots of bees and flowers outside and uh, that's where I am uh, and, in, and in many respects that speaks to my background who I am I, I born and bred in this area very much a Victorian so we have a really lovely uh, four seasons here in Victoria uh, and so our recreation tends to sort of base around that from surfing in the summers and the off seasons to um, to skiing up in our in our mountains uh, they're not mountains like the Rockies or the Alps but uh, they're, they're hills that get snow and, and that's good enough for us and it's a very pretty part of the world and in many respects it has dictated who I am and where I go and, and how I view the world. I don't think uh, a lot of people think of snow when they think of Australia. Yeah, that's right. But people are quite shocked. Um, you've got to go right into the depths and there's only really a thin band of our great dividing range, which goes all the way from Melbourne right up to Cooktown. So it's one of the longest mountain ranges in the world and it's old, so it's not very big anymore. It's been eroded down. But yeah, there's patches of it, our main range. You know, it's all between sort of you know, five and seven thousand feet, and uh, yeah, it gets a gets a bunch of snow in the winter, and it's uh, still plenty on the hills at the moment. But um, yeah, springtime's knocking at the door, so uh, it won't be there for much longer. So, has has uh, the spirit of adventure always been with you? Yeah, I think so. I, I um I always contest that because I think everyone's got it in, in many respects. A sort of modern human it gets beaten out of them because it's so much easier not to be adventurous. You know, it's very easy to comply and be one of the crowd. So if, if adventure is to be an outlier, um, yeah, I suppose I've got a, a fair streak of that as an adult where I'll just say stuff, I don't want to do this because I think it's a good experience. Um, and I've tried to make a job out of it. And, and how you do that is with films and books and, and teaching in a sense, outdoor education, you know, you sort of become a bit of an outlier teacher, but, um, yeah, mum and dad were very spirited in, in what they do, you know, being outdoorsy kind of people, gardening and painting and, and outdoor work. And I sort of, I, I certainly got a, a chip off their block. So, uh, you know, you've got a quite an eclectic past in terms of uh, outdoor activity. And I know one of the things that we're, uh, we're planning on talking about today was paddling, of course, with being the show being Paddling the Blue. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about your uh, Africa by kayak trip. So tell us a little bit about that trip. Sure. Well, 
Well, first, I'll go back a chunk. I'll go back four years before Africa when I'd graduated university and, you know, like a lot of young students or a lot of people that are about to embark on a full-time work or a career of some such, I, um, I thought I didn't really want to do that straight off the bat after four years of university. So I'd bought myself a kayak about six months earlier and hadn't done a lot of sea kayaking, uh, a couple of years' worth. And I learned to roll a kayak in the States, actually, not here in Australia where I was doing outdoor education. Um, and I thought, I, I, you know, I went off on this trip uh, when I was 23. It eventually en- ended up being called the film the, the Green Paddle. It was my first real sort of stint at filmmaking where I was filming each day and would come back to an edit suite a few months later and make it into something. Um, now, that was, I don't know whether that trip was a success, but I certainly felt like I'd, I'd tapped into something, this sort of sea kayak touring idea and this idea that uh gee you can go a long way in a sea kayak and it's it's relatively silent and it's really good for your body and you can see a huge amount of landscape via the sea meet all these people along the way and have a have a great adventure and so when i was i remember being washed up at the end of that trip it took about six weeks i thought of i just thought of africa you know i was in the pub and i was having a few beers and i thought gee why don't I go to a continent that I've always wanted to go to and to do something similar to this, but, you know, a longer range expedition. And so uh, Africa was sort of conceived in my mind then to, to paddle a big chunk of coast. And it took several years of planning and preparation and gathering away some money. And, and off I went in 2007 to paddle from Mozambique to Namibia. Now, was uh, your first exposure to kayaking in, in university, you said? Yeah, I, I first went in a kayak. I think I was 19 years old, six months or thereabouts. I wasn't yet 20. And it was with my great mentor, Brian Ponchwacho. He, he was the sort of leader of our course and, and a real avid sea kayaker, a real paddler. You know, the real sort of Paul Caffin, the great sea kayaker who's circumnavigated Australia, New Zealand, Japan and up the coast of Alaska. And he, he's done, he was probably the world's sort of foremost kayaker of the 70s and 80s. And, and Ponch is very much in the same sort of guild um, and so I was taught by a really good teacher, and not 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 the tech stuff. I've never been in, I've never been a boffin of sea kayaking, but he certainly revealed to me the potential of the sea kayak as a mode of transport and, and as a as a great way of getting around. So four years of planning, you find yourself yeah. in two thousand seven in uh, in Mo- Mozambique. So what happens from there? Yeah, it took a lot to get to the start line too. I tell you, you know, I mean, <laughs> I even getting. I flew I flew into Johannesburg, which is not on the coast, uh, and then had to get a couple of thousand kilometres northeast of there to the coast of Mozambique with these chunks of kayak, you know, because I had these pull-apart kayaks for myself and Jared, a, a Kiwi bloke who was going to join me for the first month or so. Uh, now, they were in customs. They, they were locked down in customs for two weeks. So this, the delay started instantly, you know, so it was no longer a story of I can paddle with good winds or good tides, it was I couldn't paddle at all because the kayaks were bound up in customs. And lo and behold, you know, it was sort of that start of that idea that nothing's as simple as it seems in another country and uh, a whole new set of laws and there was certain sort of elements of bribery you had to get to get through just to get to the coast, get to the water. But in any case, yeah, we got there a couple of weeks after uh, touching down in South Africa and um, we started at the Tropic of Capricorn which is a little town, we just started north of it actually, about five or eight miles north of the Tropic of Capricorn in a town called Inubane. 
and you know tropical coastline with coconuts and you know beautiful weather and all these kids running around on the beach and uh and away we went and it was um it was a really special moment that first day actually to to, to get past the small shore break and, and start paddling south that was you know you don't have many moments like that in your life where it's such a big moment of build-up a bit like marriage i suppose <laughs> now how long did it take from the time you uh, landed in uh, in johannesburg to actually get to start paddling uh yeah it was nudging three weeks by the time we saw water or by the time we actually pushed out so wasted a lot of time in just red tape of getting there um and it was quite tricky you know so it was it was several buses and then paid lifts in the back of utes uh, um and then dragging out to the coast you know so even just once once we got the green light and we could get through border control and we had the kayaks and we had our food and we had our cash and away we went. It was still days, days and days just to get to the coast. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was it was sort of three weeks to get to the coast and then almost five months later I didn't. it took me to finish uh, in Cape Town. From that first day on, uh, you, you get out past that first short break and you kind of start to get the experience. Uh, tell us more. Keep us, keep us going. Well, all right, I'll, I'll be kind of lineal about the thing. That's, uh, <laughs> I'll sort of map my brain out how... how uh, yeah, it's sort of the first few weeks were very much just about getting your systems dialed. Now, whilst I'd done a bunch of sea kiking by that point and a heap of guiding, and, and I sort of had all my systems pretty good. You have you have kind of five and six day systems or even ten day systems, but nothing compared when you are living out of your boat every day, just like you would a car or an office or a house. You know, you've got to, in a sense, reinvent things. And, and whilst a six or a ten day set of systems does overlap into expeditionary living there are many differences you know so the first few weeks were very much just about getting your systems down where things are what time of the day you do things and how habitual you make those things it was very much just about getting into that mode and that's when the sort of the 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 travel fitness really started to kick in too where you start to get you you really get into a groove and your 40 and 50k days are quite doable and and i wouldn't say easy but you just you work with all of your mechanisms because you save time everywhere and you're able to get to where you want to go because uh you're well oiled by then and so that's when we sort of hit a purple patch i still had the new zealander jared with me at that stage a great guy i met in the u.s um, him and I were doing some sea, uh, some kayak guiding on rivers and lakes in New England. Um, and I knew of him as a really, he was a sailor really by heart. And so he knew the sea really well. He was, he, he knew the sea better than me, really. He could read, he could read the world of, of the sea. And so he, he was a really invaluable contribution to that first month and great company, you know. And so him and I got our systems in, in order and there was no animosity and you know, it was a really good relationship uh, which got the expedition off onto a good start. And we, we got to Maputo, which was about three or 400 miles down from our start point and went into town, you know, buried our kayaks with a, a local fisherman or got him to look over them for 20 bucks or something. And off we went into town to try and extend our visas and had some beers and went back out to the coast. And that's when things started to really change. So uh, one, we were starting to enter into the sort of t more temperate coast where it wasn't just sandy beaches and coconuts. It was starting to get into mixed coasts with headlands, the autumn uh, rather than late summer. Uh, and, and then Jared got sick, so he got malaria, which we sort of suspected for a few days before 
going into a clinic and taking a day off the water and sure enough and he gets a battery of pills and he takes these big giant pills uh and then he's illegally taken out of the country uh of south africa uh, across the border sorry that was in mozambique still of course um he was illegally taken across from Mozambique to South Africa under a boat of a fisherman because we couldn't get visa extensions. And I likewise just pushed on solo down the coast, uh, paddling into another country and, and, and on I went. And that's where I really truly learnt the value and the, I suppose the headspace of solo travel. I'd never done such an extensive solo trip before from that point on. And uh, that's where I kind of learnt my... Um, learnt the game i suppose of and the joy of being by myself i loved it i really did so you had about a month where you were uh, accompanied you and jared and then for yeah. the remaining four months solo no no so here's the kicker so yeah. i was a couple of months by myself uh, and then jared he went back to london and, and recovered and lo and behold worked worked his tail off for a couple of months and bought another ticket to africa and with my <laughs> invite too because I, he, he deserved to be there for as much as it was just going to be a cameo, but he deserved to be there and I enjoyed his company. And so he came back for the last month uh, or even six weeks, I think it might have been. Um, now, the trouble with that was that I, I met Jared back down at a place called, uh, it was just past Durban, I think. It might have been Durban. I think he flew into Durban. It was. And then we, so we set off, we took out a chunk of coastline, the Cedarburg section of coast i think it was uh because of the cliffs and would run out of time to get all the way to, uh, to cape town without taking out a chunk and so by the time jared and i got back on the water you know i was kind of in solo mode by then and it was different you know and um our paddling fitnesses was was slightly different although it was still very enjoyable his company was excellent but the trip then it had a different flavor because we had a finish line and it wasn't this open-ended sort of vagabonding experience it was a bit more serious and far more demanding coastline and it was cold by then so yeah the trip just kept evolving and getting harder or different or more challenging in other ways so so what was it about africa that that really got you fired up that you said that's where i really need to go i mean you know you mentioned that you were in the pub and you know having a few beers and started to think about it and decided that was the the continent you needed to go to but why why africa well, first and foremost, being that sort of young bloke where you think an adventure isn't worth an adventure unless you, you're kind of at the forefront of it. You know, it's probably more exploration than it is adventure. With Google Earth now, and even then it was only in its infancy, Google Earth. So I was able to get a few images, but not like you can now. You can't, you can't see the sort of tiles on people's roof that you can now with Google Earth. Then it was this high-level flyover of the African coast, and then it just went to pixels. But in many respects, I thought I, I knew that Africa hadn't been or I suspected and, and I still don't think it's the case. No one's paddled the entire length of Africa and I'm not sure it will be done anytime soon. Freya Hoffermeister did South America and that's a hell of an effort and that took her years in, in big stints. Africa's bigger than that and far more contested because of the, the so many borders and it's, and it's incredibly um, socially and culturally it's really hard. Geographically, it's super hard, but you put all those three things together and it's, it's a heck of a thing. And so I knew that it hadn't really been done or if not done before. So I wanted to do this big chunk in one hit by myself uh, as a first. You know, you sort of want your Everest expedition when you're in the prime of your sort of paddling life. And I don't think that's true. I think I'm a better paddler now. But in any case, yeah, I thought Africa's got this sense of a first to me. 
that's in the southern hemisphere it's massive you know australia's big but there's three and a half africa's sorry three and a half australia's in africa which is staggering when you think of that as a landmass yeah uh and australia you know there's it's almost almost the same the lower 48 of the u.s is the same as australia the continent so mm-hmm. they're, they're big land masses and then when there's three and a half of them in africa so that attracted to that attracted me a lot um and, and off i went so the sheer size of it and then the uh, the social and political challenges um, those certainly combined to make quite an experience yeah it really did and look in the end there was only a couple of border crossings to get into mozambique and then to get back into South Africa because I didn't get all the way to Namibia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did go to Namibia in that two or three weeks in, of a hiatus in the middle to go in. I went on, uh, you know, to go in and see some some big animals. So I got to Namibia, but by foot and on land <laughs> before <laughs> the actual paddling began. Uh, and it's a real, it's a great shame I didn't get to Namibia because the people are wonderful. You know, as as they were in Mozambique in South Africa, but there seemed to be a real genteel nature to the Namibians. Uh, I'm not sure the coast would have been the same. It's diamond country and heavily guarded sort of moody seas too on that Atlantic coast. So, you know, whilst I romanticised that Namibia was going to be the great ending, it was probably going to be the hardest part too. So what did you enjoy most about the experience? Well, I get asked that question a lot. I have for a long time. I could tell you honestly, John, that, that, you know, for for the amount of days I was in Africa, which... It, it went very quickly in some respects, and yet some days went very slow. There's probably, for every 10 memories that I hang on to now, uh, two of them are exceptional and the other eight are very hard. I'd never, been, I've ne- I'd never done anything by choice for so long that was so hard. It made me evaluate sea kite touring and, and try and get the love back in some respects. It's, it, was, it was to the point where... Um, and I write about this. I've written a PhD about sea kayaking as the kind of, that's, that's the data set essentially is my experience as, at sea as a sea kayaker. And in many ways, um, you know, you get to a point in adventure or expeditionary sea kayaking where the very simplistic life you're in search of becomes just like home life. And so you almost flip it on its head and resist the very thing you're doing and loving because you want to be back home with, a kettle and a kitchen and the people that you're familiar with and so I got to that point at about four months in Africa I thought you know what I'm ready to be home I don't need to do this for a year to prove myself as a sea kiker or as an adventurer or as a storyteller and so I knew that then that these big long-range things were limited unless I changed the ingredients or change the way I see it so it, it, it gave me great insight. That's, that's interesting. Um, that, that really is. I mean, that's kind of, it sounds like that was kind of your biggest learning from the trip then. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and, and amongst other things, such as success, you know, we bump through life thinking of where do we find our successes? Well, I got back from Africa thinking this was a great non-success. You know, I wanted to paddle between four and 5,000 kilometers and, and only did half that. Uh, and it was in an abbreviated way where I had to take out a chunk of coast and had problems and you know something as simple as losing your paddle i lost one paddle to the sea uh coming in on a rough landing and lost it smashed the camera housing and broke myself as much as the kayak but lost my paddle too lost it in the in the swell in the 
in the surf. Um, so I went to another paddle and got instantly tendonitis or, um, you know, sort of soft tissue injuries in the arm. And I just thought, gee, what, what, a, what a pain in the backside that I've, I've done this stupid thing by coming in at, a, at the wrong spot. Now I have to change up my paddle and it instantly gives me an injury. And it was, I sort of limped home into, into Cape Town thinking, I, I just want to pull the pin. And so I came home thinking this was, that, that, that trip wasn't a success. And sure enough, I didn't touch the footage, which was, you know, I had about 25, 30 hours worth of footage. This is in tape stock these days, not in, um, not with, not in digital form. Uh, I didn't touch it for a year. And so uh, it took me a while to get around to telling the story. Yeah, there were a lot of there were a lot of learnings in there that I would say you'd consider that a success. Yeah, I do now, absolutely. Uh, and anything that you don't succeed in ends up, you know, you, it, we're optimistic us humans. Otherwise, uh, uh, the women in our life wouldn't keep having kids. You know, it's a horrible <laughs> experience for the most part, and yet it becomes a, a pillar of their experiences in the end. And yeah, absolutely. So the, the unsuccesses of uh, of Africa made it a success in a way, and it made me vulnerable. Uh, the sea is still inherently a very scary place to me. You know, big waves and big seas is a very scary place to be, especially if you get it wrong. And I, I had I had experiences where I misjudged things. You know, well off the coast, you're five or eight kilometres offshore, and you you see these big rogue waves coming and by golly, it uh, scares you to your bones. Yeah, so any particularly sketchy moments that uh, you'd like to share? Yes, well, both the introduction to my book, which is due out early next year, the manuscript's fully done, and that's off getting um, beaten into shape now by a copy editor. So uh, it's called The Backyard Adventurer, and both it and my PhD, the first couple of pages are about day 62 of Africa, which was... Oh, Jared had left a couple of weeks earlier, uh, maybe even 10 days earlier, and uh, I was off the coast near Richards Bay. Yeah, I don't know if I was five or six or seven or eight kilometres offshore, but and it was kind of a misty morning, a real overcast day. And I couldn't land because it had reef and a big shore break, so I had to keep going through to this port town. And sure enough, I see this big rogue wave coming in my left, coming, you know, steaming towards Africa and... I have to turn into it and go up its face. And I, I get over just, you know, and, it, and it's a four or five meter wave. It's a massive wave, way out deep. And, and I get over just, and if I hadn't got over, I would have been completely tumble dried and spat out and it would have wrecked everything, it would have ripped me apart and probably half the boat. And well, I probably would have survived the actual tumble, <laughs> but I'm so sure I'm so far from shore then. And my boat probably would have kept going with it. That it probably would have been, including all my, my EPUBs and sat phones. You know, I had them on deck rather than on me. Um, so I made a few mistakes. Anyway, that was that was a scary that was a scary wave. That was a very this could end it all, Bo. Uh, knowing and you know that. I bloody knew it in that in that very moment I knew it. And so uh, yeah, and, and particularly in the aftermath too, you think I never want to repeat that. I bet. So out of curiosity, um, is this a trip you'd ever consider doing again? Yes, <laughs> and, uh, and that has come up a lot. And I, look, the thing is, I'm married now with a little baby. You know, I've been on dad duty all morning and there's a little one-year-old outside playing now with my wife. And Congratulations. And a, thank you. Yeah, and that's brilliant. What an adventure that is. Uh, so I'm in a really good patch now where I don't necessarily want to go off and paddle around the African coastline, but I kind of do too. I kind of want to go back to it. <laughs> 
Now, if I was to go back, I would have to take, not have to, I would want to take my wife and May uh, with me. And so how would I, how would I work with that? Would I, is it possible to have uh, a female and a female, a young female daughter bumbling along the coast in a full drive of some kind to help out? So you'd, you'd ask, I'd have to really re- retrofit the expedition and I'd, I'd want to do it anyway. So, yeah, I certainly think about going back to Africa. I'm not sure when and how, but, uh, and I've got other trips up my sleeve, but it's, it's on the burner somewhere. Well, that certainly sounds like a, uh, yeah, the impetus for a, for a new expedition, just figuring yeah. out how to make all that happen. So how did well, Freya, you? Freya, you know, she's an inspiring character, Freya Hoffermeister, to go around South America. Have you talked to Freya? I've not yet. She, if you can get her on the line, she's amazing. I've um, written articles about her, her and her book, and it wasn't written by her. It was written by um, Joe, uh, Joe Blickman, I think his name. Yes, is. yep. Great book, you know, fearless and very insightful of of Freya and her mechanical nature and just how, just how, she calculating she is. Amazing paddler. Anyway, so I was quite inspired by her South American venture and the fact that she took it in chunks. Uh, because I think, you know, doing the whole thing in one hit would, golly, it'll do your head in a bit. So Africa is sort of, that would be how I approach Africa, but there you go. Okay. All right. So how did you prepare both mentally and physically for that trip? I was pretty nervous in the, in the lead up, particularly because nearly the entire lead up was going to be just by myself. And it was only really at the 11th hour that I invited two people along, one of which was going to come and he couldn't come at the last minute. And then Jared came on board. Yeah, the, the, the nervousness kind of dissipated a bit when I knew Jared was there for the first month or two, you know. You don't, and just because of that, that's, that strength in numbers and the support mechanism. You know, if, if Jared had been there on that big day of day 62, it would, would have been bad, but it wouldn't have been a, a journey and potential life killer, I wouldn't think. You know, just having that one other person doubles your chances of life, you know. And so... Uh, I had a great mentor, you know, so Poncho, I went and had cups of tea with him. Um, who, he's paddled the, you know, the Victorian coastline and done some real, really big days at sea as a tourer for all his life. Uh, and, you know, getting smashed out in way offshore by five and six lines of big Australian breakers. You know, we've got plenty of coastline to, to make you pretty seriously consider sea kayaking and... and he washed up ashore after being smashed a bunch of times, and he just said, "You know what? You just got to you got to go with it sometimes." Um, and that, and you know, that very simple statement was, "You, you know what, Bo? You're going to get smashed at some stage. Coming in on a beach you don't know with crappy maps, you're gonna you're gonna eat it." And I did a bunch, and you end up just like a, a bull rider or a you know a, a motorbike rider when you see them crash at 300 kilometers an hour and, the, and they get up you think how the heck did that happen you sort of you get good at crashing <laughs> so <laughs> for there was about a month there coming in you'd, i'd just crash land every time so right i'm just going in i wasn't trying to read the sea anymore i just i just paddle in <laughs> whatever happens happens and yeah you kind of yeah. just give into it and, and it was liberating somehow you're going to end up on shore and all your gear is going to end up there as well Yep, you just, you know, tether as much as you can and you lose a lip balm every now and again, but otherwise just get smashed and get in and get the billy on uh, and just start to recover. <laughs> so what advice might you give to someone who's, uh, someone else who's planning a, a huge expedition? Maybe something, well, maybe not quite to that level, but a big expedition of their own. Well, I had really good pieces of advice along the way and I was always going to, I was always going to do it. 
you know, regardless of whether I got good or bad advice, I was always going to go. So I, I, I think I probably got lucky with some of the advice I did get. Like a local marine outfitter, for example, that I got little, you know, stainless steel shackles and spare parts for, for me in the kayak. He was excellent, and, and the, he wasn't a sea kayaker at all, but he was very much a coastal person. And, and so I got some advice from him about bilge pumps and things. And in the end, he just said, you know what, Bo? Five or six months in Africa, so, this thing might work for the first five weeks, your bilge pump, but then it's not. And then it's just dead ballast, and it's something else to go wrong and something else to fix. So just take a pump, take a hand pump, don't worry about an automated bilge pump, and just you'll be fine. And, and that, that little simple piece of advice from a non-sea kiker was excellent. And so I very much from that point, actually, you know, from 2007 through to now, it's my expeditionary life is very much about being a beast of simplification. If I don't need it, don't take it and criticize everything that goes in your boat, uh, in, including yourself sometimes, should I be here? <laughs> let yeah. alone should the things in my boat be here. So I'm very much a creature of uh, if you don't need it, don't take it because in many respects it causes problems itself. Yeah. Is this a need or is it a want? Is it going to add more yeah. complexity to the trip or, and just make it more frustrating? That's yeah. right, John. And, and small luxuries are worth their weight in gold, you know. So one little chunk of chocolate or, um, you know, a fresh pair of undies once a week or whatever it might be, these small luxuries that you build up to yourself and that's all that needs to be you just need to make them luxuries to you uh that's excellent that's all it needs to be so you mentioned the green paddle earlier was that your biggest expedition up uh prior yeah i suppose it was in fact it was and that was my first hit out at being really solo it wasn't it wasn't like that sense of off the grid like africa where i had a satellite phone and a bbc world service radio uh, and virtually no one on the coast. It's illegal to live really on the coast in South in uh, in uh, Mozambique and a lot of the northern South African coastline. Really. Um, so it's very desolate in a sense. And that sense of remoteness is very real. In Australia, I felt you know it's very much the same. You know, we have so few people for twenty five thousand kilometres of coastline in Australia. We have twenty five million people, and we live in four metropolises really. Uh, and so Australian coastline is epically unpopulated, but um, but you have mobile reception, and and there's there's, not, there's you're never really far from a four-wheel drive track or from a lighthouse or so, or something, and a friendly Australian to sort of to help you on your way. You'd never have that sort of political or social animosity in a sense. Who's this? Who's this wealthy white bloke from Australia coming down and and paddling our coast and and can we rob him or should he be robbed or, or whatever and when i say that i've got to say that kindly because the, the people of africa were magnificent to me but there were still some tensions and some hardships along the way that i probably wouldn't have had in australia being in australia paddling around australian coastline and so by the sheer thing of being there it was a very different agenda from uh, africa and and my first paddle around australian waters were very different so how did yeah. you um you know create that atmosphere of of friendliness to uh to the local folks that's a very good question john because uh you can you can be quite you know a young man can be very naive to what is going on in the bigger picture of where you are and in some respects that is a very powerful thing too you know so i would very naively and 
uh, always with a smile on my face, uh, wash up onto someone's... By the time I hit South Africa, particularly the bottom section of Africa and heading up towards Cape Town, all of that is, is very quite habited and there's lots of beach houses and lots of second homes and lots of big estates and it's owned. You know, the coastline is owned, whereas before that it was very desolate or felt it. So I'll be washing up on someone's property for, for you know, months there it was. And so I'd just have to rock up onto their onto their lawn or where, you know, they've got a veggie garden or, or somewhere a patio to sit and just be very kind and say, do you mind if I pitch my tent down there at the high tide mark? And invariably, they'd bring down iced tea and, you know, <laughs> uh, and say yes and invite me for dinner and offer me showers. And, and it was just, it was, the, their friendliness was amazing. But I always went in with a positive attitude and, and um, you know, I never flashed around any money or flashed stuff. I had bad T-shirts that were ripped and torn. I never looked like I was wealthy. I genuinely looked like I was a wash-up. And so that always sort of played into my hands a bit. But for the most part, I thought if I'm good to people, they'll be good to me. And that's what happened. So tell us a little bit about the equipment that you used on the trip. Well, like I said, I sort of, I ended up taking way too much stuff. You know, things like first aid kits and uh, spares, uh, clothing. I just took way too much. And, and even now I've, I've spent, I don't, I'd say, thousands of days in a sea kayak or living from a sea kayak over the course of my 20 years 20 odd years in a sea kite and i still stuff it up every time i still even now guiding i take too much stuff and i do that because one i've got the capacity to there's plenty of storage space in a kayak and even if you're going for 10 days you're never going to fill it and i take spares for the group and whatnot but in terms of gear it was very basic i had a you know of course i had a spare paddle i had all my camera equipment uh which was heavy and bulky then it was nothing like the micronized cameras we have now it was all still tape stock and you know it was all the size of house bricks every single element of it um and so there was lots of camera equipment you know little tripods and things lots of spares for that that was i was probably most precious about capturing the trip as much as uh, how much was in the first aid kit which i pilfered off as i went you know so a lot of the lot of the first aid kit i would swap for water or barter for food or i took a towel a small towel and that went within the first week to a fisherman so it really in the end was just bow with his paddling kit so you know you got a really good pfd really good sun smart kit really good paddle good gloves, comfortable, you know, for the most part, it's about being comfortable as a paddler and the rest is superfluous. Once you hit land, and especially in the tropics, all you need is a good pair of shoes and, and a hat and that's it. Um, <laughs> I had a very basic tent, you know, it was a hundred dollar American tent. Uh, so there's no, there was no great shakes. I, I am no gear boffin. Uh, and I haven't been since because of the effectiveness of how simple that trip was. I just kept jettisoning stuff. If I hadn't used it in the first couple of weeks, out it went. And so that was it. You know, I, I kept losing um, sponges uh, from behind my seat. And so they were they became quite, you know, and you'd lash them down, of course, and put them under bungees or put them below deck. But you just lost them because they had a they were like Houdini. They'd just get out and all of a sudden it's gone. So I, I ended up taking spare paddle, spare sponges for the last month and, uh yeah, of course, didn't lose one for the last month. <laughs> so it sounds like the uh, the most valuable piece of equipment that you took on the trip was uh, was a, hum- a humble personality. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and look, Jared, and of course, when you've got two people too, you can thin things down even more because you can back each other up. You really only need one pump between two, in a sense, and probably one sponge between the two, one tent between the two, one stove. So by the end of it, by the time we rolled into Cape Town, we were rattling around these really bony, empty boats because all we had were the bare essentials plus a week's worth of food. Uh, and that was it. You know, we knew we could get water wherever we went by the time we are in South Africa and we weren't taking 20 litres of water each for hauls between... And, of course, you're not drinking as much, not as hot. Um, yeah, so uh, you just... you just It's simplified. So you mentioned uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of days in a boat. So what are some of your other favourite expeditions? Well, I suppose since then, I haven't done anything that long. Uh, Crossing over Bass Strait in 2017, that was a three-week expedition. That was an excellent trip and, and a very unexpected social trip. I knew it was going to be a wonderful geographical sort of expanse of sea and and islands. It, it really is, John, and I don't mean to be parochial, but it is. And I've been to lots of island chains all over the world, tropical and temperate, uh, and they, they were just magnificent. Um, maybe because there's, you know, there's certainly been colonisation there and some of them are, are, are raw, just green mounds now where sheep are grazing rather than lovely forest. But for the most part, it still looks very prehistoric, the islands between the Australian mainland and Tasmania. Uh, our crossings were anywhere between sort of 40 and 90 kilometres. So committing, committing chunks of paddling where you've got a, you know, and super tidal. Uh, with one of the largest fetches in the world feeding it from um, from Antarctica. So when the weather is nasty on shallow seas there, it is huge waves. Uh, but of course, when it's not, it's a mill pond. And you've just got to contend with tides and your own sort of uh, tides, essentially. So that was a really, that was a wonderful trip. In and around that, since 2009, I've been guiding two or sometimes three trips a year uh, for university students, anywhere between seven and twelve days long, and so they um, and they've been all over Australia in most of our sort of island archipelagos, uh, you know, from UNESCO Hinchinbrook Island right through to the to the Whit Sundays, or um, you know, even I returned through to Bass Strait. We we caught a catamaran out there and potted around with students, which was excellent. So. Um, yeah, the sort of guiding experience is so different too. Your, your kilometres are a lot less and it becomes about the massive moving parts of people and seasickness and their stuff and who's got the tin of kidney beans and who's got, you know, <laughs> who's got the marine radio today and whatever. So it was, a, it was very different. So what's next for Bow Miles? Yes, well, I've been having meetings with people that are wanting to make films. Um which is, which is quite, a, you know, I'm very endeared by that when people approach me to make a film for their company or their brand or whatnot. And, I'm, and yet I'm a bit uncomfortable about that too because I'm not sure that's where I want to be or where, you know, I'm not sure the synergy's there just yet. But in any case, there are some sea kite trips coming up. I'm just not sure when to pull the trigger on them and, and how. I mean, in COVID at the moment, it's impossible anyhow. So it's a nice hiatus to not think too much about that, but... Uh, look, uh, the Torres Strait between Papua New Guinea and Australia has been interesting me, interested me for years, um, as has a return to 
the US and doing some co-steering and some, some potentially some paddles uh, out off uh, Florida there. Uh, and really, look, that, that uh, maritime coast um, is always, you know, from Maine right through to Newfoundland has really, has really got a bit of a grip on me. I've, I'd love to do more of that. Uh, but I'm not sure. You know, in the sea kayaking world, maybe another Bass Strait crossing or um, some Victorian coasting, but I'm not sure. So uh, a couple of my previous episodes, uh, one was Jake Stahoviak, and uh, Jake did what was called the Great Loop, and uh, part of that included uh, paddling the length of Florida, and so he could be a, a resource for you. And then uh, Christopher Lockyer uh, was a previous episode as well, and Christopher's up in uh, uh, Nova Scotia and uh, could have some some good information for you as well. So Magnificent. Yeah, they're... they're particularly that maritime coast up around new england and northwards of there uh what do they call that the is it the maritimes or is it the, yes. the um yeah just and so different really to australia too with that sort of you know we don't have pine trees on the coast so when you see a conifer growing out of a rock from a piece of coastline uh it's a very exotic thing for an australian we're used to gum trees and tea trees and these sort of baked coastlines you know but uh yeah well, maybe consider the great lakes as well it's uh, yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, you're not the first to to say that, and and I've have thought about that. It's a great idea. All right, so Bo, this has been fantastic. I really uh, appreciated learning about uh, about you and history and and your Africa trip. Um, how can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions or just want to learn more about you? Well, I think my go-to, John, is um, you can go to my website, which is bowmiles.com. Yes, that's my name, B-E-A-U-Miles.com. That's nice and simple. And that takes you to, that's got nice, big, fat, clickable links to my YouTube channel, which is probably my main sort of media outlet now where I dump things, and that's all my films. So Bo Miles at YouTube. Uh, and the book's on its way as well, but, uh, but that's all part of the, the website thing. You'll see and navigate that. But, um, yeah, and lots of podcasts out there too, uh, although in many respects a lot of them are about filmmaking and general everyday life this is a really lovely sea kayaking piece um so i look forward to dipping back into your archive as well but yeah for me it's um youtube john that's great all right so your your film history is uh, as, as i mentioned pretty eclectic you've got a, a lot more than sea kayaking out there yeah you know if uh, there's running stuff in there and some backyard adventuring and some uh, you know some quirky finding of things uh and there's a lot more films to come. I'm, I'm locked into a four-part series next year uh, with Screen Australia, which is our national funding body, which is really exciting. I've never done anything with funding before. I've always just been sort of squirreling away, away cash. So, yeah, lots more films on the horizon in the next sort of four to 12 months. And tell us about the Backyard Adventure. Well, the book itself, it's all done. It's just off to the copy editor now, and it's it's very much about you know, and I've alluded to the fact that going to Africa for five months is a very big chunk of time. You know, that's a, you know, it's it's a big chunk of your life in a sense as well. Let alone the fact that that's just Africa. Let alone the filmmaking afterwards and the planning and training and preparation beforehand. And I suppose it's like directors now. When directors, Hollywood directors, do a year, do ten films in their whole career, then they've had a good life. You know, and it comes down to ten stories. Um, so the backyard adventurer for me is very much about having more stories and more bang for my buck closer to home. 
that I don't have to travel great distances to do. And so my level of perception or my sense of perception has to be sharpened or changed or altered to try and get those big senses of crossings and summits and, and challenge closer to home. Although at least that's what you think. And then when you try, you know, I paddled my local river all the way to the sea and it took me almost four days, which takes me 30 minutes to drive. And so it was, it was hard and it was really insightful and uh, it was a heck of an adventure and it's right under my nose. And so my, my new book is about exploring backyard places like I used to explore the world. Sometimes the greatest adventures are, are you know, just right, right under our noses. Exactly. So excellent. So the backyard adventure out in March 2021. So we'll we'll look forward to seeing that out there. So thank Bo, you, John. Yeah, that's the go. Yeah. So, but one last question for you, um, as we wrap up here, um, it's a question I always ask at the end of uh, end of interviews, and that is, Bo, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? That is a good question, and I've got a lot of good paddling friends out there, and I'll give you two names. First of all, I've mentioned, I think I mentioned them both once. Uh, my great mate, Ponch, Brian Ponch Watcho, is a, is, is a heck of a mentor of mine and a very stable head and a, and a very good paddler. Him and I have done lots of Victoria and Tasmania and Queensland together. Uh, so Brian Watcho, otherwise known as Ponch, he's, um, he's a very esteemed writer and academic and the head of a university course at the moment. Uh, if you can't get a hold of him, then my, my good mate Dan Dan Webb, who was one of the, the trio of paddlers I paddled to Tasmania with, and he's a, he's a, he's very good fun man. He'll uh, he'll he'll get a smile on your dial because he's he's just a kooky fella that says what's on front of mind, and he's very bright. And so that's Daniel Webb from from the UK who paddled across uh, the strait with me. Excellent, excellent. I will make. Uh... I'll collect contact information from you, and we'll make sure uh, take an opportunity to reach out to both Dan and uh, and Ponch. So, excellent, John. Both, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to learn from you, and uh, look forward to hearing about future successes. Thank you, John. Been great chatting. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, power to the paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I love Bo's philosophy on adventure. It really struck me when he said, it's easy to not be adventurous and just blend into the crowd. So let that one sink in. My friends, stay adventurous, get out there, keep doing cool stuff. Uh, whether it's Africa by kayak or finding excitement in your own backyard by paddling a local river, don't forget to look at what's right under your own nose. So thanks for the words of wisdom, Bo. Everyone, be sure to check out Bo on YouTube for more on Africa by kayak, crossing the Bass Strait, or eating 191 tins of beans over 40 days. You'll check it out on YouTube uh, and more. 
So next episode, we head to South America to hear Darcy Gector's story. Darcy is the author of Amazon Woman, and she's going to share her story of the 148-day expedition to become the only woman to have ever paddled the entire length of the Amazon River. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.